Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Lit Pickers. I'm here with your host, Deepanjana Paul, who, who is, is here, here with your host, Supriya Nair. We're trying to confuse you. So in the first season, a lot of people told us that we sound alike, which is something I still can't wrap my head around. But, but for the record, this is Deepanjana. And this is Supriya. It's going to be really confusing when we sound nothing like this for the rest of the episode. But anyway. One of the things that happened to Deepanjana and I over the last year and a half was that we got pretty heavily into Korean dramas. Like a lot of people of your acquaintance, if not you yourself, dear listener. And this has spilled over into a broader interest in Korean culture. In fact, we're really, really hoping to just like get this episode into the can so that we can go out and eat the bibimbap that we ordered <laughs> and, for dinner. And the first place that you and I are going once this damn pandemic has come in under some sort of control is Seoul. Yes. Because you and I have a tteokboki date somewhere in a shack in Seoul, if that's the last thing I do. We're going to stumble out, smelling of soju, absolutely, completely, full to the brim with tteokboki and bibimbap. With tickets to maybe go and see our favorite actor in a musical. Yes. Where we won't understand a word. of That's what... okay, but we'll just stare at Cho Sung-woo. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Having said which, this um, interest in life and culture in South Korea, which is really beautifully depicted in some of the best Korean dramas, spilled over into an interest in Korean literature. Which for a long time, I think, in the West, in spite of a, a fair amount of cultural exchange between South Korea and the United States, and in spite of a fairly constant stream of Korean immigration to the United States, didn't really result in visibility for Korean art and literature and music until very recently. K-pop is obviously the thing that's going to spring to mind when I say that. But uh, there's been an, a clear uptick in translations of South Korean literature and Korean literature in general. More on that through the show. And so, as people who occasionally read books, Deepanjana and I have, in fact, found ourselves interested in reading books by Korean authors or about Korea. And it's really interesting to do a parallel between what we see in the dramas and what we read in the books, because the books that have inevitably, most of the books that have come through into English translations are literary fiction. They're not popular fiction in the conventional sense. Now, Korea mm -hmm. has a really thriving readership of what is known as webtoons. Mm -hmm. And those are translated as well. A lot of them are now available in translation online. Mm -hmm. They're very, very coarse translations, though. I say this as someone who's um, <clears throat> read a couple. Um, <laughs> why? Cough, true beauty, cough. Yeah, uh, the things I will do for a boy's pretty face. But anyway, so there are the webtoons, but... What we are going to talk about today is literary fiction and nonfiction. Mm. Uh, one nonfiction, mostly literary fiction after this. And one of the reasons that I found it really interesting is that in many ways, Korea has had a really dramatic change in the way its society has developed in the last 20, 25 years. And the books that we're going to even inevitably end up talking about reflect these changes. And it's interesting because India has also had a really interesting last 20 years. And I don't think our literary... Too interesting. <laughs> yes. But I don't think our literary fiction particularly reflects this quite as well as the limited Korean literature, which incidentally 
could be abbreviated to a fabulous term like K-lit or um, clit. I'm just saying it's an option. And yet, Korean literature just is not as celebrated as Japanese literature, is not as celebrated as Indian literature in the international landscape. And that's something I find interesting because I do think that they're doing a better job of reflecting their society's dynamics than a lot of these contemporary fiction cultures are. Yeah, some of that like subaltern thing that Indian academics are famous for talking about. I think you can definitely see patterns of how that works in Korean culture. But we want to recommend some of the books that we've read to you, or at least tell you about what we found interesting about them. And the first one that Dipanj and I both picked, because we've both read it, is in fact a work of fiction that was a smash hit in South Korea when it came out. It definitely crossed over into being a blockbuster, was made into like a hit movie that starred, you know, maybe one of the biggest Korean stars of all time. This is, you've probably heard of it, actually. It's called in English, it's called Kim Ji Young, born 1982. It was written by Cho Nam Ju and translated by Jamie Chang. One of the reasons I find that interesting, Dipanjana, I, I mean, I breezed through the book in like a few hours, is that the writer happens to be a writer of Korean dramas and the book kind of followed those beats really well while clearly telling a story that was too dark, maybe, for the average K-drama. So for those who have not read Kim Ji Young, born 1982, It's the story of a woman who, a married woman with child, who suddenly, it seems, one morning, seems to have adopted the identities of other people that she has known in her life. And it's through that woman's life that you kind of chart the last, whatever, 25, 30 odd years of Korean society. What I loved about uh, Kim Ji Young, born 1982, Like you said, it has a lot of the beats of a K-drama structure, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, what it's also got is that awareness from the writer that she must hold on to the reader's attention. Mm. It is an extraordinarily unindulgent book. Mm -hmm. And this is a subject, the internal life of a woman as a subject is something that tends to be dealt with very indulgently, you know, treated with lyricism and metaphors mm. and, you know, just just flamboyance. And also in, yeah, flamboyance is exactly the right word because this stuff often kind of tips over into like the risque, while Kim Ji-yong is very careful never to go beyond something that's recognizable to a vast number of women. Interesting tidbit, Cho Nam-ju, who wrote the book, wrote the whole book in two months. It's not a very long book, but that's not the point. As anyone who has ever tried to write anything will know, (laughs) that writing a complete story even in two months is a small-time achievement. She wrote the whole novel in that time. And she said that the reason why she was able to do it was because she didn't really have to imagine much. And that, I think, is one of the most, you know, it's one of the most uh, double-take moments for a reader, I think, because you feel, you do feel that you can relate to what Kim Ji-young is feeling. And the last line of this book just ties it all together. I'm not going to tell you what that last line is for obvious reasons, because I would like you to read it. But that last line just brings home why this system will not be broken. Hmm. Such a simple book, perhaps simplistic to some of you who will read it, and yet so smart in 
in all the ways that matter. If you think it's simplistic, I'm going to stuff rice into your face. <laughs> anyway, moving on. I say rice because rice is such an important part of both ours and Korean cultures. Ha. Anyway. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about our next book. Also one that you and I have both read, but I want to hear your take on it. So, The Birth of Korean Cool, How One Nation is Conquering the World Through Pop Culture is a book by Yuni Hong, which was published in 2014 when I for one had no idea of any of this whole hallyu thing. Mm. Barack Obama had said hallyu in some speech because she references this in the book, but I got to say it totally didn't register. You know, um, you know why it registered for me? Why? Cuz I went to four weddings that year and at all four weddings I had to dance the sangeet to Sai's Gangnam style. Yes. Now <laughs> Gangnam style was something that a lot of us remembered, right? And that's something that Uni Hong actually uh spends a lot of time on because let's put it this way. If you look at K-pop idols or stars as they are known, rather K-pop stars who are known as idols, if you see them now, you will see that there is a very carefully cultivated image. They're extraordinarily thin, they're extraordinarily stylish, they dance well, etc., etc. Then there's Sai, who looks like a giant potato and is constantly making a fool of himself. This was not the man who was supposed to promote Korean culture on an international stage, and yet he Not only did he do that but he also showed a side of Korea that the government campaign for Hallyu had not anticipated which was the ironic cool mm. of K-pop culture. And yet it makes perfect sense right that he was kind of the gateway because he is in some ways the most non-threatening teddy bear version of an Asian male that you can find and you know Gangnam style was like wall to wall laughs right yeah. and all of us whether we'd like whether we knew what the capital of south korea was or not found him immensely amusing so he was kind of the he was kind of a bridge and now you know whether at that point of time you were someone who had heard of k-pop or not you saw this as a kind of novelty hit yeah absolutely and then before you knew it you know you came to bts and and whoever else, else. <laughs> and everyone else uh respect to them all Black to anyone who's BTS, listening iu uh yeah but when you when you wrote the birth of korean cool because sai became a phenomenon to a large extent i think that must have been one of the reasons why her publishers would have been like yeah let's have a book on hallyu yeah. it's a really interesting book because it's part memoir yuni hong's father is among the people who was enticed to return to korea from america when uh, in the 1980s when south korea was sort of working towards rebuilding its economy and society to become the next superpower. Uh Yuni Hong at that point of time was in her preteens, mm-hmm. 12 or 13 if I remember correctly. And so much of the book is about the kind of adjustment that she had to make as someone who was re-entering Korean society. She folds her memoir and her personal experiences in with uh statistics and data and cultural studies and it is a fascinating book that i really truly hope will have a volume 2 sometime soon because like i said this was written in 2014 and at that point of time korean culture had started to take the main stage in certain places but it was certainly not as dominant as it is today mm. and it would be very very interesting to have someone like yuni hong look at the fictions and the imaginations that are being crafted in South Korea and the realities 
that exist as kind of like the foundation for these imaginary cultures. Hmm. You can find something of an update on that in New Kings of the World, which was a short book written by Fatima Bhutto, yes. in which she explored Turkish soaps, the appeal of Shah Rukh Khan in Hindi movies, and Korean pop. Also, the virtue of, not the virtue, but the benefits of belonging to that society and knowing of its history and cultural values plays an en- enormous part in books like this. And mm. you really feel that in something like The Birth of Korean Cool, mm. where she talks about the concept of Han, for example. Mm. Han being this sort of deep-seated sense that the universe owes you so much and because you must wreak vengeance. Because, because it's fucked you over. Yeah, basically. The world and the universe has spent generations just robbing you of joy and therefore sadness is your lot, you know. The idea Hard of- relate. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the notion of the kind of Korean pride, the very distinctive quality of Korean pride as opposed to just a general nationalistic pride. Mm. And for me, one of the stories that really brings that home in the... Birth of Korean Cool is the story of the Dokdo Islands, mm. which the Japanese and the Koreans have been fighting over forever. Mm. The Japanese call it Takeshima and Koreans call it Dokdo. There are a bunch of volcanic rocks that are largely inhospitable. Mm-hmm. But I forget when, but at some point, there was a Korean octopus fisherman who showed up and decided to live in those rocks, mm-hmm. on those rocks rather, because that would prove Korean ownership. Yeah. And thousands of people did this. There are people who live on those rocks, Koreans, Mm -hmm. just to establish Korean ownership. Now, the Japanese tried to do this later, but nobody Japanese actually moved to Dokdo, whereas the Koreans did. Unihong has one of the best lines or one of the most memorable lines that I have read in a work of nonfiction, where she says, people say Rome can't be built in a day. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) She's like, I lived in Seoul in the 80s, and I can tell you that that's not true. (laughs) I think it says so much to us as Asians who have like kind of, you know, had this historical pendulum swinging from extreme deprivation to the possibility of extreme riches. So in that sense, Korean culture, the Korean economy and people who can interpret it have become interesting to me for more reasons than one. One of the things about Han, which Uni Hong talks about in The Birth of Korean Cool, is that it's about a sense of loss. And this is something that every South Korean lives with, because just across the border is a country that is their own, culturally, you know, ethnically, historically, that they're sundered from in every way. It's interesting whenever a crossover can take place. If you're listening to this episode, it's highly likely that you've at least heard of Crash Landing on You, which is a story that explores the bridges that could be built between North Korea and South Korea, particularly if you have two really gorgeous people who fall in love across the border. And you can just, you know, show up in Switzerland easily. (laughs) with Yeah, without visa trouble. One of the most interesting crossovers in Korean literature that took place in the 90s was when a strange novel that had been written in the late 80s happened to flood South Korea. It's called Friend in English. And it was written by a North Korean novelist called Pek Nam Nyong. Uh, and was translated recently by Manuel Kim, which is how we now have access to it in English. And Friend was written in North Korea. Now, writing literature in a deeply surveilled state where art and culture is heavily controlled is not easy. But Friend, which was written by a man who is a faithful member of the party. Absolutely. I mean, and he's not a dissident by any Not stretch. at all. And whose work was approved by his leaders and yet ended up being 
the sort of work that you know people would read on a bus and and who and that they wouldn't stop talking about is pretty extraordinary because to be able to produce a novel under the kind of social and political pressure that you live under in North Korea that's actually memorable and worth reading or rereading and talking about or worth sending over the border is not all that easy the story is fairly straightforward it's about a woman who wants a divorce from her husband she's a singer she ends up marrying a, a factory worker and their marriage is breaking down because their personalities aren't compatible but the judge who is hearing the divorce case doesn't just see it as a problem between this man and this woman he sees it as a social problem that needs to be reconciled not just by bringing the two of them together but by figuring out what it is in society that is making it hard for these two people to stay married how can he correct that is marriage then something between more than a man and a woman is that something a society has responsibility for and if it is then does that mean that bringing up a child is also a social responsibility does that mean that breaking up is also a communal responsibility it's quite interesting because the idea of divorce as something that has ramifications upon the larger culture is a wide ranging subject that we've seen explored in all sorts of films in particular but also books as well but i think one of the reasons why friend actually captured the imaginations across the border in south korea as much as it did was because divorce has been such a contentious topic in south korea mm-hmm. south korea has been a very difficult sexist society in many many ways hard relate <laughs> yeah without in fact and this is something that one of the reasons why i got so interested in k dramas was actually this that on one hand you have a reality of laws and social strictures that don't allow women the kind of space that they should have to give an example of what dipanjana is talking about until the 1990s if you got divorced as a woman you didn't get custody of your kid exactly by default the child would go to the family that to the sorry, father's family yeah but i think as an example of art produced under a political system that is vastly different from ours it was incredibly fascinating to me i don't think novels produced in the soviet union at the height of communism can give you the same sense of disjuncture the same sense that the you know because historically the novel became such a phenomenon because it was the first form of popular art that was about like people as individuals about characters whose subjectivity whose individual subjectivity mattered more than anything else in the world and friend is kind of not about that at all friend is about social responsibilities mm. it's about how characters and their decisions and their motivations are formed by the people around them it's about how politics can change all of that and i think that is so fascinating and it really tugs at my heart to think of you know some south korean sitting in a bus in seoul reading this novel in the 1990s that comes from across a border that's just a few miles away but that they can never cross in their lifetimes that's really emotional for me okay dipanjana tell me about our next book moving on away from the realist 1980s 1990s uh, social analysis of friend to a book that has been described as a fever dream and really i think that is the best description of besua's untold night and day mm. which was translated by debra smith mm-hmm. this is a book that i have to confess i picked up because the cover is stunning mm, gorgeous the girl on it reminds me of isom mm. who is a very beautiful actor this is true and not a conventionally beautiful actor by korean standards mm-hmm. 
the Korean standards is something we'll talk about in another book that I have to recommend. But Untold Night and Day is about a number of characters who are essentially navigating the loneliness and alienation of city life. The book is set in Seoul, but it's not a Seoul that you will recognize, Mm -hmm. even if you know the city, I'm told. The story sort of revolves around a bunch of creative characters. There's an actor, there's a poet who's never written a poem. There are filmmakers, there are detective novelists, one that I was like, oh, this could be me, until he was very, very strange, at which point I was like, no, this could not be me. (laughs) Anyway, so there are all of these creative characters, photographers, artists, poets, actors, documentary filmmakers, who try to understand what is happening in the city. And it's as much an ode to the weirdness of city life where things just keep happening to you and you think that you're part of a story when in fact it's random. Or then again, is it really random? This is the sort of thing that Untold Night and Day looks at. It's not a conventional novel. It's Mm. not the kind of novel that you should pick up if you're looking for plot and if you're looking for easy causalities because those are not there. Mm. It is, however, incredibly gripping, right? It has the capacity of, I think, good crime fiction, you know, where you just keep reading because you want to know what happens next. Mm. That's what Untold Night and Day has. And to achieve that in this sort of surreal swirl of events, which don't connect to one another and yet have symbolic connections, right? So you'll find one sentence that a person says, which shows up three stories later. Mm -hmm. There are characters that resurface from other people's perspectives. It's like a kaleidoscope of dreams. Mm. It is absolutely haunting. Mm. What you've said reminds me of another crime-ish novel that I read called The Plotters by Kim Eun-soo, or Eun-soo Kim, which was not, though, like Besua's novel in that it it feels more like you're reading a film than, you know, I don't know, like watching a book, if you like. But that, that quality of unsettling reality. Yeah. Right? The Plotters and Untold Night and Day are very different books. They are. There's For one thing, Besua's writing doesn't feel like, you know, it's jumped straight out of a video game slash Not uh, at all. Hollywood blockbuster, while The Plotters is very much like that. I would love to see a film version of Untold Night and Day, mm. but I don't know how anyone would do it. Isom, if you're listening to this, please. Do it. Do it. So I kind of bounced off another short Korean novel that's actually a French novel. In English, it's translated as Winter in Sokcho. It's by the French novelist Elisa Shua Duchapin, and it's translated into English by Anissa Abbas Higgins. The book was written in French, if you couldn't already tell, and won a bunch of prizes in France. It's incredibly atmospheric. It's set in Sokcho, which, if you've watched K-drama, you know is a beach town where people don't go in winter. So that should give you a sense of the atmosphere of this sort of lonely, alienating, empty place in which a young woman who works at an inn as a cleaner and a housekeeper ends up having an encounter with an older French cartoonist. So I kind of bounced off Winter in Sokcho, though I have to say Elisa Duchapin's talent is evident to anyone who reads like 10 pages of her book. She's an amazing writer. And it's not her fault that she wanted to tell a story that... I was just really tired of. But if you are interested at all in reading a short book that that is written by someone who is clearly operating at like the height of her craft, I recommend that. Another book that I would recommend, even though I didn't love it completely, is If I Had Your Face by Francis Cha. Francis Cha was a CNN 
travel editor, I think, who lived in Seoul. She also has, she's, I think, Korean-American. Frances Cha's book is basically about a bunch of women who mm. live in Korea and their lives, right? And this group of women covers from a child who is privileged in terms of being a Chebol kid. Mm-hmm. Chebol's being... What is a Chebol? Chebol being these uh, giant corporations that effectively rule Korea. Basically, the Ambanis and Adanis of Korea. Anyway, so from a Chebol kid to an orphanage kid, that's the range that the characters cover. And... One of the things that I worry about when an outsider or an expat writes about a culture is that they're going to sort of have that outsider perspective, right? That you're going to feel that this is someone looking in on the culture. Mm -hmm. And that happens a few times in If I Had Your Face. It's not like Frances Cha is able to take it out completely, but she... She uses the fact that she has her American experience in a good way, which is to take these Chebol kids to New York, as a lot of them often do, because like with our elite, the idea of studying in America in Ivy League schools is extraordinarily charismatic to Korea as most other cultures. That's what Ivy League schools are for, babe. I mean, we do help <laughs> their uh, you know, budgets stay what they are. But yeah, so if I had your face, it's like a really good look at what it means to be a woman in Korea today. Hmm. And in that sense, I find it a really interesting add-on in that sense or an addendum to Kim Ji-young. Mm-hmm. Because this looks at aspects that Kim Ji-young does not look at. For example, plastic surgery. A lot of this book is about the kind of risks that uh, women will voluntarily take and what they expect plastic surgery to deliver. It's not just about making a K-pop career or making a K-drama lifestyle. It's at a very basic level of making your living as not a sex worker, but as a hostess Mm. in a bar. You know, as something as basic as that. We tend to forget why plastic surgery is so important for so many people. And Mm. this is not gender specific, which is one of the things that bothered me about If I Had Your Face. Like, it makes it seem as though... Only women have to deal with these issues of economic insecurity, of physical insecurity. It's not just a women's problem, but it is also true that the systems and the society that we live in and the one that is Korean society, women are certainly far more vulnerable to this than men are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if I had your faces, it's not a quick read. It's a hefty read, but it's a really good look at Seoul in contemporary times, I think. Mm. If anyone's watched a Korean drama, they've probably come across the star Lee Min-ho, who is uh, maybe one of the most famous Korean actors there is today. And I have to say, this is someone who thinks he's a terrible actor. He is. Uh, like, he has a different face in every drama. I respect that for him. You know, love that for him, if that's you know what he wants. You know how they say that you but must like, adapt to your character. That's pretty much what he does. Yeah. And, you know, and he's going to be one of the leads in a major... Korean-American production called Pachinko, which is in fact based on a novel that I think most readers of English will associate with Korea because it's that much of a hit, even though it was written by a Korean-American. So I haven't read Pachinko. Tell me what it's about. Pachinko by Lee Min Jin, or Min Jin Lee, if you like, is a multi-generational family saga of the sort that most Asians are actually deeply familiar with because all our (laughs) publishing industries have been coming out with these stories. Also, it's like... For years on end. For publishing, international publishing in general, the moment you come to Asia, it has to be a multi-generational story. It's like one generation, not enough. 
If you do not have a grandfather who has not been traumatized, if you do not have a grandmother who survived occupation in some form or the other, why do we care about you in the present? Why are you even writing a novel? Well, you get plenty of grandmother surviving occupation in Pachinko. Ah. But I think this was particularly special and refreshing to people. Imin Jinese is a beautiful, engaging writer. And she told a story that I think a lot of people were hearing for the first time. Mm. Uh, it starts in 1910 and it continues until the end of the 20th century. And it is about a generation of Koreans struggling under Japanese occupation who have to contend with colonialism and poverty within Korea, who then cross over, not entirely of their own volition, to Japan and become part of a community that is now known as Zainichi, which is Koreans living in Japan, very much as second-class citizens, you know, in the years preceding the Second World War, as a sort of unique immigrant community within Japan, which is a deeply hierarchical and ethnically homogenous society, but that nonetheless has these deep links with Korea. Mm. And it's a story of how one family survives that. And they're going from Korea to Japan to the US and their relationship with the mother country, with each other, with the generational trauma that they carry within them. And I think her style is vivid, it's engaging, it's simple. It's also deeply sentimental. So Pachinko can feel like it's a novel that could have been written at any point of time in the 20th century, maybe even in the late 19th century. I think perhaps that's what draws people into it. It's not ironic, it's deeply earnest. And the thing about family sagas, as we all know, is that they really draw you in. Yeah. You know, if the family, like if the family hooks you, oh. that's it. Then you're in a marriage with that novel. And I think that's what so happens to a lot of people with So is that a central character that we follow? Yeah, well, her name is Sunja. She's like kind of the matriarch. And obviously we meet her as a young woman who's taken in by Imino, as millions of women around the world have been. <laughs> I'm it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, Imino is playing the, you know, he's playing the character who is that guy. And we end up acquainting ourselves with her husband and their family and their children and stepchildren and grandchildren. I think perhaps those of you who have read uh, Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club mm. can see like kind of the structural similarities, although they're two very different novels. And perhaps more importantly, you can understand why someone who didn't come from this culture like really enjoyed this because it felt like, oh, this is a glimpse into this is a glimpse into a world that I don't know very well, but yet it's written in a way that's like very easy for me to understand. I also think that for most people outside of Korea and Japan, that particular relationship between these two countries, the trauma that that holds for many Koreans, yeah. and the fact that many Koreans still owe a certain degree of social and economic capital to surviving under Japanese colonialism, I think that was unexplored. And perhaps that makes Pachinko quite special. I'm interested to see the screen adaptation, and I'm particularly interested to see how contemporary Koreans react to it. It should be really cool. And I'm waiting to see who this new drama is really for. Is it for people like us, an international audience? Is it for a Korean community that lives outside of Korea? Or is it for Koreans themselves, whose relationship to their own history differs very vastly from that of those of us who weren't born on that soil and who have no visceral connection to it? I really hope that if you look at the books that we have recommended in the course of this episode, you'll get a sense of just the diversity of perspectives that make up Korean culture. It's something that we tend to miss, I think, when we're looking at stuff like K-drama or K-pop in isolation. Mm -hmm. because these Or even Korean movies, right? Which make you think that Korea is basically a culture of incredibly cool men who make very, very violent, sexy movies. 
<laughs> very, very screwed up men with extraordinarily screwed up sex lives. Indeed. Um, but yeah, the reality of a culture is in its diversity. And I think the literature of Korea sort of allows you a glimpse of that. Mm -hmm. Ranging from the dreams that you see in the webtoons to the reality that is translated into literary fiction, mm -hmm. whether it's a dreamy reality of Untold Night and Day or it's the grounded reality of Kim Jong-born 1982. It's a small country. We tend to be told this all the time, that it's a populous but small country. Mm -hmm. And that tends to make people think that they must be all the same. I mean, everyone's called Kim. Surely nothing can change yeah. between them. That's not a racist joke, by the no, way. No. Like, you know, a Korean idiom is looking for Mr. Kim in Seoul, which is like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah, because some 70% or 80% of Koreans have the surname Kim. <laughs> it's just a basic fact. But the fact is that Obviously, and this is obvious to anyone who reads, which is why I will always think of you as readers rather than audiences. Anyone who reads knows that experiences vary in the smallest of communities, just like in the largest of communities. Diversity is real. Every person thinks in a different way. And despite those differences, we find ourselves able to connect at an emotional level at a level of memories, at a level of dreams, mm. at a level of, oh my God, how hot are you? Mm. Whatever it is, it works. That is what novels are about at their heart, whether you're writing them as a member of the Communist Party or the DPRK <laughs> or a young woman who has lived her whole life in Paris. With that, we will bring this to an end. Should I sing a verse? Yes, from you should. I would like you to sing Butter by BTS. Butter by BTS. I am ready to do that for you, my friends. Side step right left to my beat. I like the moon rock with me, baby. Know that I got that heat. Let me show you cause talk is cheap. Side step right left to my beat. Get it, let it roll. I'd just like to remind everyone that we are a books podcast and not a music podcast. For music podcasts, please listen to Made in India, who is amazing. Um, for books, it's us, Supriya Nair, Dipanjana Pal, and we will be back soon. This was a Made in India production. And if anyone needs me for BTS covers, do not look for me because <laughs> I will not be available. <laughs> Goodbye, friends. Annyeong! Annyeong! <laughs> The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran Dipanjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks and keep listening.